Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe that the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today we invite in a special guest to talk with us about the issue of abortion. Abortion sits at the center of our cultural conversations and creates deep divides because it exposes foundational belief differences. As a cultural golden calf, the pro-choice position demands complete allegiance, abortion on demand for any reason, no matter the cost in unborn human lives. So the church needs to think well about how to resist this culture of death and promote a culture of life and to live a gospel-shaped version of what it means to be pro-life. Welcome to the conversation. We have a full house in the studio today. Pastor Van. Hey, good morning, guys. We got Pastor Ben. Hey, what's up? We've got Elder Keith Lowry. Hey, good morning, everybody. Myself, obviously, Kyle Wisdom. And we're all normally here, usually, but we've also got um, Jeremy dutifully turning the knobs in our studio. He's waving his hand for the audience. And we also have our very first guest speaker on the podcast today. Today, we have a special guest, Josiah Presley. Really glad to be here. Now, Josiah is an accomplished pro-life speaker and an advocate speaking on behalf of the unborn across the country. He goes to churches, conferences, newscasts. He was just at the uh, March for Life yesterday in Washington, D.C., um, and he is himself an abortion survivor. We're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. He's also a graduate of my alma mater, Criswell College, um, with a BA in psychology, and has worked with youth in the Dallas area, both as a youth pastor as well as with Young Life's Capernaum Ministry. Is that correct? Yeah. That's awesome. And then right now, you currently serve as the Associate Pastor of Family Ministries at Lakeview Baptist Church in Belton, Texas, and recently got me hooked up some really good barbecue down there. I was driving through, and he knows all the best places to get food. Uh, He's an avid outdoorsman, camper. Um, He's also had the distinct misfortune of being both my roommate and friend for many, many years. (laughs) So uh, we may have to counsel him through that over the course of this podcast, but we're really excited to have you on, Joseph. Wouldn't be the first time, Kyle. A psychology <laughs> major probably helped. Yeah. <laughs> it was needed, for sure. <laughs> so obviously today our topic is going to be uh, the pro-life position within the church and specifically centering on the concept of abortion. It's uh, We had National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday just yesterday that we celebrated at our church and many churches across the country, um, which is somewhat timed during the year to uh, commemorate um, or remember the handing down of the Roe v. Wade decision. This is the 49th anniversary, um, which has culminated in what some experts estimate is 60 million abortions um, over the last 49 years. And so what we really want to do is spend some time asking why has abortion come up again and again and again as both a hot point in our culture and sort of a sacrament of the secular culture that we're encountering and really get some ideas about how to handle that perspective in our culture. And Josiah, hopefully you can help us out with that. So just to kind of kick the conversation off, just tell us a little bit about your story. How did you make it to become a influencer kind of in the pro-life movement? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor of worship of the church I grew up in. And so, uh, you know, growing up, 
we were at the church uh, well before the doors were open and well past the doors being closed. We were, you know, I was a church rat. I'm one of 12 kids. Ten of us are adopted. Uh, I come from a very pro-life church, and my parents have very strong pro-life convictions. They, they lived out those convictions in the ways uh, that they adopted children. Um, and so throughout my childhood, it was never a question whether or not we were pro-life. Our church uh, did Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We did uh, the Walks for Life for the Pregnancy Center. We did, we did all those things um, that, that many Christian pro-life Christians do. Uh, but if I'm honest, for the majority of my childhood, I really didn't care about what it meant to be pro-life. I recognized the importance of being pro-life. I recognized that it was my parents' pro-life convictions that led them to adopting me. But Ultimately, uh, my pro-life convictions really didn't uh, make their way into my mind on a regular basis. It was just something that was there. I understood. I didn't really care. Um, as I progressed through my childhood, though, and as I made it into my teen years, uh, a very um, huge revelation came for me. My parents, when I was 13, uh, they decided, uh, they thought that I was old enough to know more about my adoption story specifically. And so they uh, sat me down and they told me about how my birth mother, uh, two months into her pregnancy with me due to financial difficulties, underwent a DNC abortion. So this is a type of abortion where the doctor goes in to the mother's womb and rips the baby apart and brings them out in pieces. Uh, at 13, I went from being, okay, I know why as Christians we're pro-life, and I know that we hold these pro-life convictions to not really caring about what it meant to be pro-life, to all of a sudden being pro-life really mattered to me because it was right there in front of my face. There was, there was no uh, getting away from the fact that my life was so closely tied to this issue. And so I really then began to care about, okay, so what does this mean to be pro-life? But if, but if I'm honest, I really didn't care in, in a good way, a healthy way, a right way, uh, because I was blinded by all this anger and all this hatred I had towards my birth parents. Uh, up until this point in my life, we had always viewed adoption in a positive light. We had always, the, the language, the discussion around being adopted was something along the lines of, hey, your, your birth parents, they couldn't take care of you, and so they loved you so much that they placed you for adoption, and God knew that uh, we needed you and you needed us, and so he brought you into our family. Like, that had been the, the conversation, right? And that's the conversation we have with adoption, and that's the truth of the adoption, right? Like, we can't get away from the fact of how beautiful it is and, and um, you know, the purpose behind that, how it shows the gospel and things like that. But it was different now at this point for me because in my mind it was, no, adoption wasn't my birth parents' first choice. My birth parents' first choice was to try and end my life. Now, coming from a, a Christian background um, with strong pro-life convictions, we were very familiar with why abortion was, was wrong. We understood that uh, human beings, that they're created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis 1. At the very beginning of our scriptures, God's creating everything, and it tells us, and so he created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him, right? And so from the very beginning, there's this understanding that human life is valuable because we're creating the image of God. We're, we're endowed with value by our God. And, and so abortion then being something that ends that human life is something that's wrong. So 
I have all this going in my mind at the age of 13, and, and there's just anger and there's just hatred towards my birth parents. Uh, I, I have a, a deformed arm. Uh, usually at this point when I'm sharing my story, I kind of wave it in the air for everybody to see it. Obviously, this is a podcast, so just <laughs> take my word for it. I'm, I'm missing an arm, right? Um, but I had struggled with... Um, with self-image issues and self-value for, for the majority of my childhood uh, because of my deformed arm. And, and we don't know whether or not my deformity is uh, specifically due to the abortion or not. Uh, considering the type of abortion is very likely possibility, but um, at that moment, I blamed the fact that I had a deformed arm on my birth parents. And there was so much anger and hatred towards them. How could they commit such a great wrong towards me? How could they create, commit such a great wrong towards me that has left me so broken down? Um, and in my mind, less than others. Uh, like I said, I struggled with uh, self-image issues and, and self-value. And, and so now at the age of 13, I had in my mind all the proof I needed for actually how invaluable or lacking a value my life is um, because the people who should have loved me the most in my mind, my own parents, my own flesh and blood, they thought my life was of so, such little value they tried to end it. And so there's a lot of uh, depression, anger, hatred. Um, I demonized anybody on the pro-choice side. I thought the abortion doctors, pro-choice workers, uh, pro-choice activists, Planned Parenthood workers, post-abortive women, I thought they were uh, the lowest of the low, the, the scum of the earth, uh, because there's people like them who made me the way I was, a person who was broken down and, and was going nowhere with their life. Now, at the age of 13, I had all these struggles, I had all this anger, and, and it really, I put it under the surface. Uh, for for a number of years, it just kind of rode under the surface for me. It was this internal struggle that I didn't really let out that often. Uh, it, it showed up when I would have breaking points throughout my childhood, but for the most part, this is something that happened under the surface. On top of the surface, I actually ended up finding a lot of my value and my identity in being a good Christian kid. So, like I said before, son of the pastor of worship, church rat, uh, became really active in my youth group. Uh, you know, was a leader in my youth group. I was the, I was a kid that uh, my parents, uh, my friends' parents, wanted all their kids to hang out with me because they knew if they were hanging out with Josiah, they couldn't be getting in any trouble. Uh, I, I was the one who like. Um, you know, I had, I had friends, parents who were like, why can't you be like Josiah? That's like where I found my identity being that good Christian kid. Right. I was, um, I was one of my youth leaders. I think I was one of my youth leaders, favorite kids, because when they actually answered or asked questions in Bible study, I was one of the kids who actually would respond. As a youth pastor, you probably um, were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I usually responded right, right? I usually gave the right answer. Uh, so I found a lot of identity in that, a lot of purpose in that, being that good Christian kid. Um, but still, the struggle, um, really under the surface. And uh, uh, the change occurred in my life uh, it wasn't for a few years until the summer after my sophomore year of high school. Uh, 
I was uh, at church youth camp. Uh, our church grew up. We went to Falls Creek, Oklahoma. And uh, I remember the pastor that week, he kept talking about this Greek word dunamis and how it means power. And he, he talked about how as followers of Christ, God imparts uh, to us this power through Jesus to to go through the difficulties of this world, the trials of this world, the temptations of the world, to go through the sin in this world, to go through our own sin and come out on the other side victorious uh, through the power that God works in us through Christ. And and I remember thinking, I don't have that kind of power in my life. I remember thinking, I'm doing all these right, good Christian things to make others look at Josiah and go, oh, look how good of a person Josiah is. I found all my value in being that good Christian kid, when in reality, on the inside, I was, I was so broken down, I was so angry, uh, I was hurting. And I remember the Lord breaking me down of my pride. Really, it was my pride because it was, a, I can't turn my life over to you, Jesus. Like, I've been doing the good Christian thing for like years now. I've got all these people who look at me and say, like, what a good Christian kid, when in reality, I'm far from you and I need a relationship with you. Um, but the Lord, I remember he broke me down to my pride Thursday night at camp. And so I, so I went down at the altar call, um, something that was a foreign idea to me, right? Going down at an altar call at camp, like, um, I grew up in a church where, like, we were very uh, theologically uh, grounded and, and theologically driven in everything we did. And so, like, the whole emotional hype of, like, responding to an altar call at camp was, like, I mean, we literally, I, I probably, I don't know how many times I probably sat at camp and watched kids from our youth group go down at the altar call and be like, oh, yeah, it's fake, right? Because they'll <laughs> be going down next year again, right? But the Lord use that to humble me to say, no, you need to be down there. You need to be getting right with me, to be uh, turning your life over to me. And so as I went down, as I stepped down, um, you know, in, in the the months and the years that followed, I, I really found identity and purpose and value in Christ, not in what I thought I would accomplish, what I thought I could do, uh, but in who Christ is um, and the identity that I have in him and the value that he has assigned to my life. Right, this this reality that I am not valuable because of my merit. I am not valuable because of the things I do. I'm not valuable because of um, whether or not someone else says I'm valuable. I'm valuable um, because the God of the universe has created me in His image, has given me a purpose, and went and died on a cross for the punishment of my sins when I was far from Him, when I was an enemy to Him. Uh, he went and died on a cross to make, bring me into a relationship with him. And so as I found identity, purpose in him, um, you know, the Lord really then began to, to I, I would say, to mold my pro-life convictions uh, in a, a proper way, in, in a right way, in a, in a correct way. So I'd gone from being pro-life, growing up in the church, not knowing or not really caring why we were pro-life, knowing why we were pro-life, but not really caring why we were pro-life, to all of a sudden I have this revelation that uh, that my birth parents had an abortion, and so now my life is so closely tied to the pro-life issue, I can't ignore it, so now I care, but I'm not caring in a good way, I'm not caring in a proper way, um, to now finding my identity and my purpose in Christ, to starting to view it and understand it and care about it in a, in a right way, in a proper way. Um, part of that journey... Uh, was forgiveness uh, 
in my life. It's kind of funny how that works, you know, when you when you become saved, when you're brought into a relationship with God, when you're forgiven of all the sins you've committed against a just, holy, perfect, righteous God, um, he doesn't really leave much room for you to not forgive others for sins they commit against you. It's awkward that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and at different times is like this, you know, this, I want to hold on to this anger, I want to hold on to this hatred, but it's this reality that, hey, you know, I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and, and I've been forgiven of all these wrongs I've committed against him. I can't, I can't not forgive them for the wrongs they've mm-hmm. committed against me. Um, but as I found that forgiveness towards them, um, I, I really found, I found healing. Um, I found, um, uh, I, I would say a deeper closeness, uh, with Christ through that. And, and just like his goodness as, as he brought me through that. Um, and, and it's still something that I struggle with and I have to work with, you know, now years later. Um, so I'm, tw- I'm 26 years now, 26 years old. So this was, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Right. And it's still something that, you know, I have to work through, but as I found identity, um, and purpose and value in Christ, he, he also changed, um, and molded my understanding of my pro-life convictions with this recognition that, you know, we say, and, and rightfully so, the unborn their life is valuable because they're created in the image of God. They're human beings created in the image of God. But just like they are human beings created in the image of God, so is the abortion doctor. He's valuable because he's created in the image of God. The the pro-choice activists, their lives are valuable because they're created in the image of God. The abortion, the post-abortion woman's life is valuable because they're created in the image of God. My my birth parents' lives are valuable because they're created in the image of God. And because of that, the gospel calls me to not just pursue and care for the unborn but also for the bur- the born right and so as the lord kind of molded that it you know it it kind of went different ways ways i was not expecting um i i began to to serve uh and, and to care about the issue i became active so in high school i then became active in the local uh, pro-life organizations we had in our city with our pregnancy centers um different things like that i, I started to share my story some um my senior year of high school uh my first like big speaking engagement uh, came up, if you will. Um, I was invited to go speak at a, 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 a right to life convention in, in Ireland, my, my senior year of high school. And so that was like, I, I remember that happening. And I remember getting this email from this guy and going, I don't even know if this is real. <laughs> like, like this guy, this like I get right. this email, Hey, yeah. I'm a doctor from Ireland and we'd like to have you come speak at a, um, I can, you know, this, uh, this convention for life. And I'm going, I don't know if this is real. Yeah, like, like, is he fishing for my social security number? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you guys here, asking yeah. me for money or whatever. <laughs> um, and so I was like, Hey dad, mom, I don't know if this is, and, you know, and they're like, well, why don't you just try responding and see what happens? And, and, and it ended up being legit. Um, and, and that was my first major engagement. And from there, um, the Lord has has opened other opportunities, and I've really been sharing my story now for probably about the last eight years. Um, you know, with different groups, different um, churches, uh, a lot of pregnancy centers. Uh, just this last weekend, you mentioned a little earlier, Kyle. I was I was able to go to D.C. for the March for Life, and I was able to share at a pro life summit there. Um, and it's been really crazy to see the Lord. Um, 
be willing to use me in those ways. And um, I've just been trying to be faithful to do that. Uh, I'm so thankful to be able to be on this podcast with you guys and, and talk about these matters. I think, um, you know, I think the greatest need for these conversations, the greatest area where we really need to be engaging in these areas, this, this issue is in the church. Um, cause I think ultimately that this is a, this is a gospel issue. Ultimately what's going to change our culture, um, what's going to make our culture value life is going to be the gospel changing our culture. And so who has God left here to, to take that gospel into the culture, but the church. Josiah, I, I think that one of the coolest things about the God that we serve is, you know, the the, the popular way of phrasing it would be he brings about triumph and tragedy. Um, your story is powerful, and and it's just so good to see God calling you and using you in these ways. I just love it. Um, brings me to tears, and I just think it's spectacular. I'm I'm concerned for the younger generations in church. I I find that a lot of the older generations, although not you know in any sort of totality, but a lot of the younger generations, I think, find kind of a sympathetic um, spot in their heart towards some of the arguments from the pro-choice mm-hmm. community. And I I would love to hear some of what you experience on that front. You know, what are some of the arguments that you think? draw Christians, young Christians in particular, kind of toward that way of viewing maybe a woman's individuality or autonomy? Mm-hmm. What what have you seen and heard on that front? Yeah, so I mean, I think when we talk about like the pro-choice side of the argument, the the number one argument that I seem to hear and seems to come up time and time again is this idea of bodily autonomy, right? And, and a woman's right to choose and a woman's right to not be... Um, you know, to decide what happens with her body, you know, this the old, uh, my body, my choice, my body, my choice, right? right? My body, my rights, my choice, all of that. Right. Um, and, and, and so then on the flip side of that, the argument against pro-lifers is, oh, they just want to oppress women and they just want to tell women what to do with their bodies. Right. And, and I'm all for a, a woman, you know, they should have the right to choose like, what they do with their body, right? I like we're we are all for. We would not say that like we need to just be oppressing women or things like that, right? <laughs> um, but but where I think really the lie has been bought, really the lie has been bought is this idea that we can dehumanize the unborn, mm. right? And so because we don't recognize the, the unborn as human beings, who who then therefore have value and ought to be protected. It's, of course, only a woman's rights issue, right? So if we say, hey, the unborn, they're not really human being. They're some sort of, you know, sub, you know, human entity or whatever. They're not actually human beings that ought to be valued, ought to be cared for. Then it becomes easy to say, okay, so she should be able to do whatever she wants with her body, right? Um, and, And that's the lie, I think a lot of our culture has bought this idea that the unborn um, are somehow less than human. Um, And because of that, we then allow ourselves to do things like have abortions, right? Um, We we then allow for laws like ones that were passed, you know, just the last couple of years, like in Virginia, right? That this blew up on the news just a couple of years ago, right? The governor of Virginia, they're passing these these abortion laws. And, you know, the question, the, the news clip that comes up was this question of, okay, so how does this work? And the governor says, well, you know, after a woman is 
um, you know, gives birth, then a discussion is entered into whether or not they want to keep the child, right? After the child's been born, right? And I think throughout the rest of the world and throughout the rest of the country, we saw a lot of hands go up and go, whoa, like, but you've already lost What's the battle going on in some here? sense in the, at that point because I think to your point, the dehumanization isn't just occurring with the way we talk about them, but actually the language we use to yeah. talk about the unborn. You know, yeah. uh, we we refer to them as a fetus, which yeah. is a scientific term, but yeah. it's used as sort of that one step away. You yeah. know, uh, or then we talk about I've I hear it often referred to as a clump of cells, yeah. or the more insidious are things like parasite. Like they'll yeah. compare a They'll compare a fetus, a baby. Yeah, they'll compare a fetus to literally a baby. A <laughs> sorry, they're comparing a baby. Here I am doing mm-hmm. the same thing. Just trying to help you out, Kyle. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I need your accountability at all times. So they compare a baby to a parasite that's you know sort of sucking all these nutrients out of yeah. a woman, as though that were a negative thing, as though there was yeah. something to be removed. Yeah. So um, you. Just how you've alluded or talked about kind of the criticality of the notion that we're created in the image of God and how that informs facets of your thinking about pro-life things. One of the things we've done in this podcast is we, we've kind of been ticking through uh, a, a series of subjects that we sometimes refer to as first principles, and we're kind of looking at the implications of the first few chapters of Genesis for our cultural understanding mm-hmm. about what's you know, what's real in the culture and what's real from God's economy. So we've talked, you know, a bit about sexuality. We're going to talk about, you know, human dominion in the world. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, we've talked about the image of God. We, you know, we've talked about a lot of these things. But one of the things it seems that is inherent in God's design, the first principles kind of in the fabric of reality that he's put out there is the, the notion of interdependence within the family, and particularly the inescapable interdependence of a woman's body and her child's body. And I think this strikes right at the heart of the whole notion of being autonomous because there is a sort of an, there's a tie that um, designed into the way things work that we're sort of giving the hand to and saying, we don't like that. And so we're going to pretend as if that's not something that's real. And I don't, think even even if you embrace the convenience of abortion, I don't think women escape the consequences of that interdependence that's just part of the way the world is made. Yeah, we it's like there's so many ways in which in any given culture, but take our own, you know, modern Western culture, we we worship the individual above mm-hmm. all else, you know, and so yep. whenever whenever you're sort of whenever what you're worshiping is out of alignment with what God has ordained um, for Himself, you're going to find a point of conflict where reality pushes back against your conception of the world, right? And in this case, it's the pregnant woman, <laughs> because there's nothing that frustrates the idea of the autonomous individual more than a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is precisely to your point, Josiah where we had a choice to make as a society. And and what we did is we had to decide, okay, either we're going to course correct and say, okay, so maybe we're not the, you know, autonomous individuals with mm-hmm. the freedom so called to pursue whatever ends we want sexually without mm-hmm. consequence, or we have to remove the personhood from one of these individuals. Yeah. Right? And we chose the latter. We chose 
this baby is not a baby. It's what Kyle prefers to call it, a fetus. <laughs> <laughs> I will now sign up to be the villain of this podcast. <laughs> I think that the thing that always gets me is those that want to use the line, it's my body, my choice. You know, had their parents taken that same line of thinking, they wouldn't be even able to make that uh, that that plea or uh, they wouldn't even be with us. I mean, it's just, it's um, always surprised. Uh, I guess not surprised. I'm just baffled by uh, that line of thinking yeah. that they carry into the argument, you know? Yeah, yeah. And if we think about it, you know, um, c- kind of going back to a little bit of what Ben was saying, all the time we restrict our our rights and our bodily autonomy all the time, right? We, we get in a car and we put on a seatbelt because the law says to put on a seatbelt for the safety of ourselves, those in the car, and others, right? We drive on a certain side of the road. We make those bodily decisions to drive on a certain side of the road for the good and the protections of others. Um, and, and, and so we do that all the time. But what it always ends up coming back to is this, you know, this reality that, but in the case of you know, the unborn, because we have dehumanized them, it's okay for us to allow these freedoms, quote unquote, in these areas, because it isn't affecting other human beings. It's affecting some other subspecies or sub, you know, uh, it's affecting just fetuses. Yeah. Well, and there has to be some honesty, I think, in the discussion about bodily autonomy, because it's not like the body autonomy moment occurs just after one is pregnant, right? Like there there has to be an honesty to this discussion in the sense that people don't get pregnant magically. Like there's not, it's not like this virus that goes around. It's like, oh yeah. my goodness, something magical happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's, is a magical thing. It's the next thing. wave we, of COVID actually is spontaneous pregnancies. Yeah. And, and, and so <laughs> we have to known be, consequences. <laughs> we have to be honest that when people are asking for bodily autonomy when it comes to pregnancy, what they're actually asking for is sexual body autonomy mm-hmm. without consequence. Yeah. They're saying, I should be able to make whatever choice I want with my body. And if there are consequences, even if that consequence includes the life of another person, I mm-hmm. should be able to resist those consequences affecting my yeah. life. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if this law is applicable in every state, but it seems if a woman is pregnant and is in a car accident, gets hit by a drunk driver in a double mm-hmm. homicide. I mean, most of the time. Yeah. So no somehow we recognize sense. that to be life in that situation. But if they walk into a clinic, uh, it's not the same. It, the same rules don't apply, which is, again, um, hypocritical. Yeah. Well, I think. And this yeah. goes back to sort of the therapeutic arguments we've talked about before. The, the, the baby only counts if it is wanted. Mm-hmm. When we talk about our legal system, the baby only counts if the mother actually wants them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a recent article um, written, I believe it was in the New York Times, about the person writing the article was actually uh, someone who was put up for adoption by their mom uh, who decided not to have an abortion. And the argument of the article was abortions are less psychologically damaging on moms, which I would love to see there. <laughs> their research on that topic but that was their their argument and so they said adoptions are actually not as beneficial to the woman's psychological health and therefore should be uh abortion should be preferred in that situation because at the center of that argument was the psychological health of the woman is the only consideration worth having mm-hmm. okay well and i i'd also mention i think this is a good point for us to to bring up this reality too you know 
we look at this and, and we can so quickly like just talk about like, you know, rights um, and whether or not they should be able to choose these things. And, and, you know, we can we can make a case for for the child and we ought to make a case for the child. And we go, so, you know, the lady, you know, the woman in the case. So you ought to just suck it up, buttercup and deal with it. Have the baby. Right. And that's also a unchristian response. Right. We ought to then recognize we still need to recognize like this reality that like, hey, that doesn't mean that a pregnancy is easy. Right. It doesn't mean it's easy to bring children into this world. And, and you know, from a Christian perspective, that's where we have to go. OK, so we actually, though, need to have the truth. But then we also need to follow up the truth with actions of love and care and these situations. One thing that I kept hearing uh, over and over, even just this last weekend at the March for Life, um, is a statement, you know, most post-abortive women and most abortion-minded women, uh, it's not that they uh, don't like babies, it's they don't like their circumstances. Yeah. Right? And and how oftentimes the, 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 when ab- abortion occurs, they are in a desperate situation, whether it is financially, whether it is family pressures, whether it is career pressures, whatever it may be. But they have all these things. Um, they have all these circumstances that are contributing to make them go, OK, the only way out is to have an abortion. Um, and th- that's how prevalent it is in our country, right? This idea that the understanding for women is if you want to go anywhere in your life, you want to make it in your life, you have to take somebody else's life. Um, and, and we have to come into that with, with love and care to say, hey, no, there's a different answer. And, and, and we, are, we want to be part of that answer for you. Th- that's such an important point because, um, <clears throat> you know, there's this case pending before the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of excitement within the broader pro-life community about the potential for some level of overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I, I mean, no one will be happier than I am, I guess, if, if that happens. But I think your words actually provide a little bit of caution to that excitement, because in a sense, the, 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 at one level, the number of abortions that are taking place I was listening to a podcast last week where a guy said, they asked him, what's the root cause of crime? And he said, the root cause of crime is the decision to commit it. And, and so the, the abortions are what they are because of the decision to have abortions, not necessarily because of the law. Then the law may clear obstacles away, yeah. but it's really the hearts of people that need to be changed uh, even more than the law. The law could allow for abortion all day long, but if the hearts of people were unwilling yep. to abort their babies, there would be no aborted babies. And yep. so um, so I really think this issue about the the circumstance and the the mindset and the, and the heart mm-hmm. of women who find themselves in diff- difficult circumstances and don't feel like they have any choices, um, I, I think that's a critical point because really whatever happens to the law at the Supreme Court, and I think, mm-hmm. by the way, for what it's worth, we should not underestimate their proclivity for sophistry and subterfuge in what they eventually rule, but they have a history of that. But at any rate, um, whatever they rule, there's a, the gospel and the gospel lived out in the lives of believers in compassionate embrace of women in difficult circumstances is going to be really more decisive than anything the Supreme Court has to say. Well, there's a, 
there's a corollary to that as well. So, Kyle, your number was approximately 60 million abortions, right? Right, yeah. Okay, so over the last 40 years? Give or take, yeah. Okay. So that's estimates based okay. on, you know. All right, so let's <clears throat> let's fast forward 40 years. Let's say over, Roe versus Wade is overturned. And there's there's not 60 million babies aborted over the next 40 years. Instead, there's only 30 million babies. Let's say that the opportunity for abortion cuts that number in half over the next 40 years. Then what you're left with is 30 million living children who need a home, most likely. Mm-hmm. Now, that changes the landscape of how Christians are going to have to mm-hmm. sort of buckle down and resolve mm-hmm. that they're going to live the life that your parents lived, Josiah, and mm-hmm. say, yes— to the pro-life issue on the other side of the womb, mm-hmm. right? Which is a person, mm-hmm. a little boy or a little girl who needs a family. And I think in some ways, the 60 million absent kids in our society um, have protected Christians from the reality that for centuries, our answer to the pro-life question was pulling babies off the ash heap of society. Mm-hmm. And we're about to have that, our eyes wide open to the necessity for Christians to open their, if, if Roe v. Wade is overturned and these, you know, right. all these other things sort of. At least the one good thing is, is that of the demographics of people adopting, Christians are the ones most likely to be adopting children, even at the, even in the current state of things. And the, we already have a, a overabundance, you know, to, economically speaking, I guess, of parents who wish to adopt that don't always have the opportunity to do so. But I think it goes really interestingly enough, along with what we've been talking about in the book of Ruth, Josiah, we've been going through the book of Ruth in um, the main service, and you have this character, Boaz, who I think does exactly what you're talking about, Ben. He's the kind of guy who sees the need of another person in this case in the, in the book, uh, Naomi and Ruth, and he says, someone should help them. Someone needs to take care of these people. And his immediate response is, well, why isn't it me? Like, why should it not be me? And you actually have a character who's contrasted with him, who's this nameless redeemer, who ends up saying, well, I don't, someone should help you, but I don't think it's, it's going to be too complicated for me. It's going to frustrate me. Mm-hmm. That's going to be, uh, it's actually going to hurt his inheritance, which if you're talking about mm-hmm. the adoption question, that's, I mean, that's a huge yeah. deal. You're talking mm-hmm. about bringing a person into your world that's going to completely change the makeup of your family. Mm-hmm. and. I think exactly to your point, Ben, Christians are going to have to really put uh, shoe leather on the claim yeah. that we believe that all lives are valuable. And they're not just valuable in abstract, they're valuable enough to bring into my home and to make mm-hmm. uh, my home a place where they can thrive. Which, and along the same lines, adoption is a great answer, but it's also not the only answer in this case. Um, one really interesting thing that I actually learned just this last weekend Um there's an abortion, another abortion survivor named Melissa Odin, and and I've known her for a, a few years, and she's founded this. Uh, it's called ASN, the Abortion Survivors Network, and so it's just a network for connecting abortion survivors, uh, giving them support, things like that. And she she mentioned over the weekend that uh, she was adopted. So she is an abortion survivor. She was adopted. I'm an abortion survivor. I was adopted. Uh, we know another abortion survivor who was adopted. But she said um, from who she's been connecting with, we're actually the rare cases Mm. that the majority of the time these abortion survivors are actually raised in their own families Mm. after the abortion fails. Um, And and that's because at that point, you know, maybe circumstances have changed um, or they've had time to then bond with the child, you know, like a lot of especially early early term abortions. It's just like, hey, like 
this happened. We got to take care of it. We deal with it. Okay, we're done. But then when, you know, they get a few months down the line and the, and the baby's still alive, they then are going, okay, and now they start bonding with them and then they end up deciding to keep the child. And so, you know, from from a Christian perspective, adoption always needs to be on the table. It always has to be on the table, right? But also there's this level of, um, as Christians, like we're, care to call, we're called to care for all. Right. And so this reality that like, hey, like even if it's not necessarily adopting a child out of a situation, maybe it's as a church supporting these families and coming around them in their desperate situation to provide a way for them to be alleviated, to help grow their child. You know, and that's part of like the community of believers, right? Why we're here. So what do we what do we think are the most effective ways a church can do that? So like how does a church effectively support a woman who's maybe decided against maybe she had she attempted to have an abortion and failed maybe she's thinking about abortion and uh the church is saying hey please don't do that and here's how we're going to support you you know how does the church come alongside those moms in those vulnerable positions to empower her to raise her kid yeah you know i think i think one of the biggest ways we need to do it is the church just need we need to speak on the issue um and we need to talk about it well Right. We we ought to be known as a safe place for women to come um, in, in, in desperate situations. You know, you, you think throughout church history, um, you know, where do they used to leave the children that they couldn't take care of at the doorsteps of the church? Right. Um, yet I, we see such a culture, I think, in our church, uh, in our country, um, where the church is kind of one of the last places that people in desperate situations oftentimes Wants to go because they think there's just judgment there. I'm not saying that's the case across the board, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that even the majority of churches would do that. I think the majority of churches would love and care for these people, but that doesn't change the fact that I think in our culture, at least, that's the stigma the church is given. Um, and, and regardless of whether or not the church actually would past judgment in those ways, it doesn't change the fact that I think our culture as a whole looks at the church and says, all they're going to do is pass judgment on us. And, and that's something the church, we need to overcome, right? And that's something that, and so we need to be engaging on that. We need to be speaking on that, I think. Um, another big um, uh, way we can be working on that, I think, is pregnancy centers. Um, t- to me, one of the, the greatest um, pro-life groups to support is a pregnancy center. Um, most pregnancy centers um, are oftentimes faith-based. I know uh, here, you know, in this area, you've got um, the Pregnancy Resource Center in uh, Rockwall, and they're great. Um, I've done some work with them. I love them. I know there's, um, is it Thrive that's in Dallas? Mm-hmm. Um, they're great too. Um, just like we need to be supporting them too, right? And and, and building those connections, right? Because because a lot of women will then go to these pregnancy centers. These pregnancy centers, we need to be as a church. We need to be a, a group that the pregnancy center can then be directing women towards as well, right? That that pregnancy center can't be their community forever. Right, they do a great job, but they need the res- they need resources from us. But then they also need us to be there as, uh, you know, almost as, you know, them letting them in some ways be a bridge to bring these people to us, right? As well, you know, it's kind of a two way street there. I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, we partner with the Pregnancy Resource Center in Rockwall. Great okay. ladies. Yeah. 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 Well, they just recently, they actually have a clinic in Mesquite now, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Well, they have the mobile, um, sort of like a bus uh-huh. with uh, sonogram machines and stuff like that in there, which is really cool. Uh-huh. So, Yeah. And I think you're you're really on the money, Josiah, when saying it's not only a, a financial support, because I think a lot of times we can get wrapped up in this idea of, okay, young moms, what do they need? They need diapers, they need strollers, they need, you know, baby food, they need all these things. But a lot of times it seems that one of the biggest needs is a community to support them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, anytime you see somebody, you know, get pregnant and they're trying to start a family, it's like the, the thing they need is just that surrounding of a community who's there to support not only them, but their child and say, yeah. we're going to be there for you through the long haul of this process. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where, to your point, churches can say the pregnancy resource is going to be there to help you get this baby born. We're mm-hmm. going to be there to help you get this baby raised and, mm-hmm. and support not only the child, but just support you as a person, as a mom, mm-hmm. um, as someone that we can show the love of Christ to. I think, I think it's also good um, if we back up a little bit, not back up, but sort of pan out a little bit and remember, like we've already highlighted, that the issue of abortion is needs-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, and it, it would be wrong to dignify every need, okay? So in the same way that it would be wrong to say that every mother who seeks abortion is herself a victim, right? Mm-hmm. We, uh, we know that um, in many cases, young mothers who are pursuing an abortion were engaged in a lifestyle that resulted in an unwanted pregnancy, mm-hmm. and their seeking of abortion is yep. the result of... Um, wanting to preserve a future mm-hmm. where they can chase the life that they want to live. Both of my kids are adopted, okay? Um, and I've, adoption's a big part of my family story, and some of my siblings actually live that kind of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, you know, my nephew is in a situation kind of like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it would be wrong, I think, to throw a blanket of victimhood in any direction, sure. right? And just say, this is how we need, because ultimately, like we said, this is a gospel issue. Mm-hmm. And what does the gospel do? It calls us to repentance. Yeah. Not to happiness or to feel good about ourselves or to some psychological comfort, right? But to repentance and renewal in Jesus Christ. And that's the church's witness. Um, and, and there's a part of addressing that need that's uncomfortable and awkward because it really isn't a, the church just needs to apologize for making people feel bad about themselves. That's really not Mm-mm. the only solution um, to a very complex moral, cultural issue. It's a sexual ethics, sexual freedom type of a problem that we're facing that precedes the presence of an unwanted child. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point about yeah. being faithful as witnesses to to talk about sexual ethics, um, I, I think that's something else we can do as a church, mm-hmm. you know, long before there's a baby involved. Yeah. Well, and even just the calling to accountability of the men that are already in that situation, you know, the it's it's not as though all abortions are sought by single teen moms who, you know, just happen to have a baby accidentally. You know, these are, mm-hmm. a, a lot of times there are men in that situation who could step up and take responsibility. And I think part of addressing the issue of abortion is calling young men to realize mm-hmm. you have responsibilities mm-hmm. to the people that are mm-hmm. around you. Um, and it's not simply just, well, you know, if, 
you get some girl pregnant, you got to pay the alimony. Like that is yeah. like th- well, that at, should be at the look at the urban African American community. We can just look at one city in New York City. We know statistically, uh, uh, an a- urban African American child is seventy five percent likely to grow up in a home without a dad, with either a single mom or a single grandmother. Right, and yet in New York City, there are more African American babies aborted than there are born every year. That's a staggering number. Is there some correlation between the absence of fathers and the the felt need of a young woman to seek an abortion um, in that crisis? I, I I would say we'd be foolish to turn a blind eye to that yeah. to that. And so, Kyle, to your point, training up young men. To, to fulfill the role God's mm-hmm. called them to be a protector of, of young women and, and someone who stays um, if they're married, you know. Yeah, my parents worked at a place in Waco for several years called Angel House, and they took in girls that were either put out by their families because they wound up pregnant or their boyfriends were trying to force them into an abortion. And, um, and so they acted as house parents to these girls all the way through their pregnancy and then were there with them on delivery day. and. You know, it was a really cool ministry just to, because it was another option, another way to go about it instead of just following the wants of a boyfriend that didn't want to be inconvenienced or, or whatever the excuse was. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's eye-opening when you see the Lord use the, the alternative choices that are out there that, that you, don't, you don't have to follow through with something mm-hmm. the world's telling you to do or is the what they believe to be the easy and quick solution. Josiah, there's kind of a change of pace here, but you engage, I'm sure, a pro-choice community as well. What's the response of a pro-choice community when they engage with someone like you with your story? Have you seen people change their mind about, like, shift in their position? Uh, it, it seems, I think, on the outside looking in, that everyone's entrenched in their perspective and mm-hmm. no one's really changing sides, you know? Yeah. Well, what What kind of impact have you seen on... On, on the pro-choice community. <laughs> yeah, so I've actually found it pretty interesting. Um, whenever I talk to people who are uh, pro-choice in their, in their views, um, I've actually found that I try to actually leave my, my story of being an abortion survivor out of the mix as much as possible. Um, because, because for the vast majority of the pro-choice conversations I have. And, and of course, you've always got the extremes of every side, right? And so there's some that it doesn't matter. They're just going to yell mm-hmm. at my face no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so like no real conversation's going to happen there. There's always that case, but there's that case for typically every side of mm-hmm. any argument, right? But for the most part, the majority of people that I've talked to that hold a, a pro-choice worldview, um, the second I bring up my story, it almost ends a conversation. Mm. Because, because for the majority of the time, their views, and, and I think this is a view we see a, in a lot of society, their views are, well, it's not really a human being, going back to what we were very talking at the very beginning, it's not really a human being, so oh, won't you have the right to choose? But then when I say, hey, I'm a human being who the woman decided to choose this, it's a, there's this moment of like, you know, deer in the headlights of, okay, I don't know how to handle this new information and what to do with it. And so oftentimes that then 
kind of stops the conversation because <laughs> because it's like because you're living breathing refutation of something they're very invested in. It, exactly, right? exactly. And so so oftentimes what I find is I just you know I just try to you know we talk through it and we try to work through it before I even bring that side of it up because. Um, because, and I think a lot of it is, I think a lot of our culture, um, you know, the ones that aren't holding very grounded views, a, a lot of our culture, um, I think that's the way they view it. They've bought the lie. Mm. Um, they've been blinded by it and it doesn't mean it's okay, but they've been blinded by it and, and we need to bring the truth to light. Um, and, and you'll see that even what, to me, what's more astounding is, is the amount of Christians who will hold a similar view, or Christians who will say, uh, I don't believe in abortion except for in the case of blank, 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 or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. blank, mm-hmm. right? And, and, it, and it's, it's really, that, to me, that's more astounding to see. Mm-hmm. The number of, of people who, who are Christians who would, who have all these caveats to their pro-life conviction, where we would say, no, that's a fundamental belief that we mm-hmm. we ought to hold as Christians the, mm-hmm. the value of the human life. Right. So when you talk to Christians, you know, who who come forward with their Christian identity, you know, it's not a nominal thing for them, but they're also holding in this in their other hand this pro-choice position. What do you find is the conversation, the revelation, the argument that changes their perspective? Or do you see it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm not gonna lie. I don't. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with somebody where they go, "Oh, you're, you're so right." 180. <laughs> I'm on your side. I'm you're shocked. Right. Yeah, let yeah. me be your. Let me be your disciple. And the you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever had uh, those kinds of conversations. But I've. I feel like I've had a number of conversations where it's like, "Oh man, I've. I've never thought about it that way." Um, let me. I'm gonna have to think about that more. And, and hopefully, they then go and think about it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, what's, what's so important and this is really a lot of this is kind of coming into the Bolajek side of like the pro-life argument, right? Um, a, a lot of what it comes back to is like, there's all these different argumentations you can have, um, and that you work through, um, justice for all is a group who's been doing like pro-life dialoguing for decades, I think. A, a long time. I did their training when I was like in high school. Um, and they're a fantastic group. If you want to learn just how to talk about pro-life convictions and how to dialogue with somebody who has different arguments, I, they're the number one group I would, um, I would recommend just because they've also changed the way they haven't changed their arguments. They haven't changed like, um, their points or their convictions, but through the years, as people have ch- uh, changed how they respond to different things, they've changed as well. So, so meaning they go, okay, so we, you know, their whole thing is they set up on college campuses and they engage in discussion, right? And so they've gone, okay, so this way of getting others to engage with us have worked, right? So we do this. Well, people don't engage as much with us when we do this. So we're going to move to the, you know, they, at one time they did the whole signs with the pictures of aborted children on them. What do you think about this? Right. Uh, And so they've done that. Um, But then as kind of times change, you know, they moved to like a table with abortion, yes or no. 
you know, like, come talk to us about it, you know, and they just kind of moved around depending on what the culture kind of responds to as far as being willing to dialogue with them. Um, and then they just get them in a conversation and, and they dialogue and they do a really good job of it. Um, but with Christians, I think a lot of times what it comes down to is there's sort of this, um, I, it's, it's kind of hard to explain um, because Christians will choose different things that are their thing. And usually it's experiential, right? So they'll say, I'm against abortion except for in the case of rape because I had so-and-so who was in my life who was, who was raped and, and they mm -hmm. were forced to keep the baby. And that is a terrible, difficult, like really messed up situation, right? Or they'll say, I'm against abortion, except for in the case of, you know, if the the parent's not going to be able to raise a child and give them a good life because so-and-so was raised in poverty and look how terrible their life turned out. Or, or except for the case of, you know, um, if their only option is adoption, because I know this kid who was adopted and this kid was jacked up from their adoption, right? Like, I've heard so many of those, and it, and it always varies. Um, and it brings us back to this reality that we live in a very fallen, mm. broken, messed up world. Um, and, and we look for an escape route from that fallenness and the consequences of that fallenness. Yeah. And ra rather than a redemption route. Yeah. You know, and to your point about how we love moms, like, I think one of the most convincing cases that I see Christians convinced of is this question of rape, right? Mm -hmm. Like poverty is not so much the question for most Christians, although maybe there's 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 some out there. I assume there probably is, but it's the question of rape if if a woman is raped and rape becomes or incest, pregnant, yeah. right, or incest, and then mm -hmm. becomes pregnant. That that child's up for like it's legitimate, you know. Just that's an escape route. Mm -hmm. It seems like an escape route. Like we can just sort of do away with this and move on with our lives. Um, but the the you know, back to this idea of triumph through tragedy, mm -hmm. right? That's what the gospel can do. Yeah. That's what Jesus can do. We believe that as a church. We don't have to resort to escape routes mm -hmm. because we have something so much better in yeah. Jesus. And it's going to take time, and that's going to be a struggle, and there's real pain and real hurt yeah. um, at every level. Um, and adoption is not, you know, it may be the answer, but every adoption stems in brokenness. Like, it began yeah. with brokenness, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I tell, I tell everybody when we, whenever we talk about adoption, I always tell them because, um, because as an adopted child, as an adopted child who has nine other adopted siblings, when I do, sh when I share with groups, a lot of that, uh, that adoption question comes up and I always tell them, cause one of the things is like, what, it's like one of the number one things you think we should know, like when it comes to adoption. And I always tell them what you need to understand is an adopted child, no matter how caring, how loving the family is, an adopted child has experienced rejection on a level some of us will never experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because at the very beginning of the life or at some point in their life, the people who we say should love you the most said, I can't take care of you and gave you up. Mm -hmm. And Every adopted child has to work through that. Some will work through it quicker than others. Some, it'll be years, decades. It'll be, some, some of them won't work through it. But that's something every adopted child has to work through, this reality that at the very beginning of my life, I was rejected. Yeah. And the brokenness, like some children mm -hmm. end up in an adoption situation because parents die in a car crash. Mm-hmm. 
that child's family identity began with brokenness. Mm -hmm. Someone may get there through the, God forbid, rape scenario. Mm -hmm. That's a broken scenario, and that child's family identity is rooted in a Mm -hmm. broken situation. Something broke to bring about this, Yeah. right? But the gospel doesn't say you are defined by your brokenness. Yeah. The gospel gives us a chance to your story, yeah. to the point of your story, to root our identity yeah. in our redemption yeah. rather than in our brokenness. I, I think your words about every adopted child has to do with this. So I have adopted children. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a surprise to my wife and I when, we, when they got to a point in their lives where they were you know, sort of conscious and thinking about these kinds of mm-hmm. things that we suddenly realized you know, we had sort of given ourselves to our children and everything about our lives was devoted to, you know, caring for them and loving them. Mm-hmm. And we we loved our adopted children. I mean, no different than our other children. Yeah, um, didn't even think about mm-hmm. the fact that they were adopted. Well, here I'm going to deal with my adopted child, or here I'm going to deal with my yeah. natural born child. We just, that just wasn't even in our consciousness. Yeah. But we discovered when they got a little older that as they started to deal with these things, that whereas, and I used to put it this way, we adopted our children, but they have to come to the point where they adopt us. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to decide at some point in their life that I'm going to choose my parents in the same way they chose me. And it doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, it sometimes takes a long time for kids to work through it, if they work through it. But very often, they, they're all in and they, they get it, you know, and just... Every child is unique and it varies, but, um, but we're called to this as believers to, to care for the, the fatherless. I mm-hmm. mean, this is a central measure of, throughout all of Scripture, central measure of God's concern and what, you know, at least James says, is the measure of real mm-hmm. faithful living is the extent to which we care for the helpless. And so, um, and for the record, you know, we were talking about this business of, is there a, is there a get out of jail free card on the question of, you know, we don't want the child born in poverty, so abortion's okay. I've been very poor in my life, and not just in hindsight, but at the very time, I really preferred to be alive than, than <laughs> right. to be alive. So right. for what it's yeah. worth, there's a lot of bad things in the world. Many of them are yeah. worse than poverty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, poverty is not the worst thing that ever happened. Yeah, and, and since when do we get to decide whether someone else's life is worth living or yeah, not? Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So Josiah, you um, talked about um, working through and being able to forgive your uh, biological mom and stuff like that. I know throughout the years of uh, I've just been made aware. Uh, I'm sure this is the case in lots of churches, ladies who have had abortions mm-hmm. deeply regret it. They don't go around talking about it, even yeah. in, in small circles. But every now and then it comes up uh, just because I think the weight that they've been carrying around, they deeply regret um, the choice they made. Um, so on that side of it, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. We need to allow the Spirit to help us. Uh, give words of of grace that God wants to extend and forgiveness. But I was just curious on your side, have you ever had the chance to meet your biological mom and, and have a conversation with her? And what did that look like? Yeah. So, so I haven't had an opportunity to meet my biological parents. Um, I, I'm from South Korea, so yeah. I've never 
made it back there um, or anything like that. Um, to your point, though, about post-aborted women, that was actually one of the one of the things the Lord, I think, really used um, to draw me into forgiveness was as I was involved in the pro-life movement, I can't tell you how many times I heard stories of women um, who had abortions, who were um, just dealing with the guilt and the pain of it years, decades later. Um, statistics say that one in four women will have an abortion by the time they're 45. That means we know people who have had abortions. Mm. Whether or not we know we know people, we know people who have had abortions. Mm. And they are either, um, you know, they, and they're keeping it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, where I have seen the most healing um, for women when they've had abortions is when they've come face to face with the reality that it was wrong. Um, and, and that and that's a reality we have to consider, right? We have to still consider and understand the reality that like abortion is like the killing of a human being, right? And 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 how many women, whether they were tricked into it at the time, whether they were blinded by whatever excuse they want to give, they still after the abortion are living with the reality that they yeah. are responsible for the ending of a human being's life. Right. Um, and uh, there's a a lot of damage and a lot of pain there. And, and you, if you, I mean, you can read the stories, you can meet the people. Um, I don't know how many times I've finished a speaking engagement and I have women coming up to me in tears mm-hmm. um, because they had an abortion. And some have said, you know, I've, I've never told anybody this before. Some have said, you know, I'm just finally working through it. And, and it is so important that as a church, we're there to care for them. We're there to love for them. But we're also like this recognition that like that true healing is going to have to start with repentance, mm-hmm. right? Recognizing it, owning up to it and going, okay, but there's healing, mm-hmm. right? Um, we, at, a, at a former church that I was serving in, we had an abortion recovery program for moms. And um, we had about four or five women in that program who had had abortions within the last two years at a church. Yeah. I mean, like, and had been part of the church yeah. for a long time. And one of the, a couple of the steps that they would take these moms through in this abortion recovery program was to, first of all, name the child, mm-hmm. give the child a name, and then have a memorial ceremony was mm-hmm. sort of how you finished the program was to have a memorial ceremony for that child. Mm-hmm. Um, heavy, heavy stuff. I mean, we can't. You know, we can't just sit here blithely talking into microphones and assume we can understand that, you know, the depth of the grief and um, pain and shame that mm-hmm. some of these women carry. But in, in almost every case, they find that Jesus is sufficient. Yeah. The grace of God is sufficient. Um, carrying them through that. You know, we're, we're big fans of Tolkien around here. So <laughs> he, he, he's sort of um, apocryphal. He shows in, up. Uh, Right. Yeah. He's, he's, um, he's, he's part of the apocryphal canon here at Lake Ridge, but you know, he has a concept, um, he has a concept of a, a wound that all the happy endings in this world can't quite remove this idea of the being stabbed by a Morgul blade. And there are pains and there are wounds that we may suffer and we can talk about redemption. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go on record as saying that 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 redemption, while wholly possible, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and 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 probable in this mm-hmm. lifetime, there are some wounds that we won't f- see the the full removal of until yeah. the other side of the gray havens, so to speak, right? Yeah. Like the other side of of the, the the final coming of Christ and the arrival of the kingdom and being re- fully redeemed. It's yeah, there that all it? the tears get wiped away. Right. No more. It's time. there that all the tears get wiped away. Not not here. And so whether you're whether you're listening right now, and we don't make it a habit of speaking to our listening audience, but if you're listening to this and you are a woman or a man who was, you know, complicit in this, uh, an abortion, you, you, we want you to know that there is healing and redemption in Jesus, and it may be a lifelong journey of redemption, but it's there for you only by the grace of God. Or maybe you're an adopted child who's wrestling with the rejection that you assume was part of your tri- your story's beginning, um, Jesus is the answer for you yeah. too, not your parents. Although he's part of his solution, he's your parents are part of Jesus' solution. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, your family is part of Jesus' solution, but they are not the solution. It's ultimately Christ mm-hmm. and rooting your identity in Him. I think that's something your story bears witness to. Yeah. That's really important. So one of the things we do as a ritual here on the podcast, Josiah, is we, we kind of go around and do kind of a final call for everybody's closing thoughts, kind of how do we, how do we exit out of a conversation like this? I mean, this, this conversation, we've hit so many different levels of this issue, and we're, we're only scratching the surface of this for a lot of people. Um, and so what I want to do is we're just going to go around. Um, we'll let you be uh, in the distinguished place of last, Josiah. You can get the last word on this for us. <laughs> um, but I just want to have everybody go around and uh, the final thought will revolve around the question of um, speaking to our listening audience. What is the way that we would encourage them to get involved in being pro-life? So whether that's ministering to uh, people after the fact or uh, reasoning with people beforehand, you know, what is the the concrete way that we can live out a pro-life conviction as Christians? Well, I'm sitting to your right, so I'll just offer um, prayerfully consider the role that God would have you play in providing a solution, whether that's for a, a mom who's caught with with an unwanted pregnancy or a child who um, ends up on a list somewhere. You know, uh, prayerfully consider leveraging your home um, and your resources for God's glory. And, you know, we, we, we tend to think the pro-life question is a legal question. If we change the laws, we've won the fight. And it's just so wrong to view it that way. And so I think, yes, lobby. Yes, hope, hope and pray for laws to be changed. But at the end of the day, you know, God's solution for this problem is going to be the gospel in the lives of Christians who sort of mete out the ramifications of God's mercy and grace. In tangible ways. So I would say pray, pray hard, and then move to the front lines um, in some meaningful way in the lives of moms and babies. Yeah, I, I liked kind of the general point of view that Josiah expressed about the importance. He, these were not exactly his words, just kind of a paraphrase, to be sort of holistically concerned about everyone involved in the abortion question, from the absent maybe fathers to the the mother who's you know under pressure to the child who 
whose life is at risk. There, there's kind of a totality to that. Uh, and your comment about we know women who, who've had abortions. We may not know that we know them, but we do know them. Um, I have a very dear friend, my wife and I, who we've known for years, and she had an abortion in college before she met her husband, who's also a good friend of ours today. And from that point on, was never able to have children again. She, the one child she ever conceived, she aborted. Um, but in her redeemed life with her husband, they have adopted four children and just invested themselves in these children and made a home and a family and built beauty. And I'm sort of hearkening back to Ben's comments about, you know, sort of beauty out of tragedy. This is the story that God weaves in all our lives. And so whether a person, whether you're a woman who's aborted a child and living with regrets, or you're a man who has shirked your manly responsibilities in the past, or you're a child who, who um, found yourself adopted, there's beauty to be had in the loving relationships that can come together in that kind of setting. And what your past is, is not all the story. There's, an, there's, there's, a, there's another story to be written beyond where you started. And um, just remember that God's in the business of bringing joy from tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm in agreement with being as involved as the Lord wants us to be with Pregnancy Resource Center, uh, if we're talking local ministries, um, extending the grace of Christ to people that are coming out of a, um, an abortion procedure. Uh, I think one of the other things I would want to emphasize just personally and just as a one of the pastors at our church is just taking preemptive strikes, saying God has got a design for your life, and, and we can head off a lot of these things by the heart change that comes with people receiving Jesus. And so uh, to, to really just put what God has designed on a pedestal and, and, and uh, present it in such a way that people would desire to pursue that. I know it's the work of the Spirit that draws people to Christ, but to really just uh, promote it for the, for the awesome thing that it is, and it would save so much heartache and pain if, if people would embrace Christ and, and see that there's a— uh, not just a better way, but a supreme way to experience life and children and the gift that they really are. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to piggyback off that and say, you know, as the opportunity I have a lot is to work with youth. Um, and so, stepping maybe a bit upstream of the abortion question, really giving them, casting them a vision to what you say, Van, of that family is a blessing from the Lord that goes beyond the success that the culture wants to sell you. That family is not a barrier to your success in life. That uh, the family God has for you, whether that's uh, biological, adopted, or otherwise, whether that's giving your life to a local church and making that your family commitment, whatever that looks like for you, the family that God has called you to is, is the way that God is going to bless your life. And seeing that as a part of what God is giving us in life. I think it's hugely important um, in teaching that to youth as they're growing up and getting to the age of adulthood so that they won't be drawn in by some of these lies that, well, that child 
is going to be a barrier to your success, mm-hmm. we'll be able to see it as a blessing instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'll just, I'll, those are all, um, I love those thoughts, guys. Um, I'll just leave a, a few, I, I would say, what I would recommend as like just like practical steps um, and then more or less a story, not really a story, but a, a thought with that. Um, so I think obviously it begins on our knees, um, just this recognition that like, um, and, and as individualistic of a culture we live in, we still need to recognize that we still live in a culture that ultimately um, is defined the laws that were written they ultimately reflect the overall heart of our culture and so ultimately we live in a culture of death because of the reality of abortion that resides in our culture and so we need to begin on our knees in prayer to god just um repentance recognizing like the sin of our culture but then also calling and and begging for intervention in life change gospel life change um i would say secondly um be willing to get into the conversations. Be willing to have those conversations with those around you. Be willing, if you're a follower of Christ, to be that person who's seen as a quote-unquote fanatic. Be the one in your family who everybody knows, hey, if there is a situation in which there's an unplanned pregnancy, this is a family member, this is a friend, this is a loved one we can come to who's going to care about us, who's going to love us, who's going to help us, who's maybe... if even going to be willing to adopt that child, but like be willing to have those conversations as parents, be willing to set that understanding that, Hey, you are children. We care for you. No matter what circumstance you end up in, like we do not want abortion to be on the table. Like, So I work with students and children uh, in my role, right? As parents, are we, would you be willing to say, Hey, even if you end up, you do things that we've told you not to do, and you end up with an unplanned pregnancy, we still care for you, we love you, and we want to walk with you through this. Abortion's not on the table. Like, be willing to have those conversations, and then be willing to get out and be active, whether it be with, you know, as we've talked about, pregnancy centers, uh, maybe an activist group, or different things like that. Adoption agencies, I think they're great ones to support as well. Like, in in Texas, you know, there's Buckner International, and there's um, the other ones I'm familiar with, like the Texas Baptist Homes for Children. They're based in, like, Waxahachie, you know. But, like, just what would the Lord call you to do? How is he going to call you to specifically do something? Um, and, and the last encouragement I just want to leave you with um, is the encouragement of what God can do in and through you when you are faithful um, to his call to love others. And I'm not talking, I'm not going to give what I've done as an example, but I'll give you as an example what, what my parents have done. So my parents, um, we've mentioned this before, adopted 10 kids. That's how they lived out their pro-life convictions. That's how they lived out the call of James 1 to care for the orphan widow inflection. They said, okay, hey, we're going to actually adopt kids. We're going to be borderline poverty for the rest of our <laughs> lives, and we're going to adopt kids. My dad literally told my mom early on in their marriage, here's the thing, honey, we can either be financially comfortable or we can adopt kids. One or the other, yeah. you don't get <laughs> you, both. You though. can have kids or money. That's um, been my yeah, um, Because he's a pastor of worship, so, you know— uh, Listeners not might not recognize this, but usually there's not a lot of money in pastoring. Um, yeah, and so, um, but he told her that, and, and they chose adoption. 
And I've seen the way that the Lord has used adoption in my family's life to change my parents, my siblings' lives. I have siblings who were literally adopted out of slavery. I have siblings who were adopted out of abusive families. I have siblings who, um, their very first adoption, um, my sister's birth mother was adamant she had to have an abortion. And my mom was in a pregnancy center counseling her and counseled her to choose life. And that started them on the road to adoption. Mm. I've seen how adoptions changed the face of, of the church I grew up in. Um, over like 70 kids adopted out of that one church. Ultimately, I have seen how adoption, how my parents living out their pro-life convictions has changed my life. Um, you know, I, next to salvation, next to the actual gospel itself, I have never understood or known the gospel or the love of God more deeply than the experience I have um, from the love my parents have shown me. The fact that um, these people who owed me nothing, the fact that these people who were thousands of miles away would say, hey, here's a kid. Here's a kid with a deformity. Here's a kid who we don't even know what all the financial costs of this kid are going to be. Here's a kid. We, we, they found me. They saw my article in a uh, adoption agency's newsletter, not even a picture attached, and they said, we'll take him. They said, we'll love him, we'll make him our own, and we'll bring him in, we'll redeem this kid who has no family, we'll redeem this kid who has no future, um, and we'll make him our child, and we'll give him a life. We'll give him a home, we'll give him love, uh, we'll give him a family. The fact that they would do that mm. um, puts the gospel on display like no other way I've seen. And it has changed my life radically. And adopted, adopted kids, they may not see it at the time. I pray that every adopted kid sees it eventually. But the very fact um, of that reality of adoption draws me closer into the gospel. It draws me more in love with my creator. It, it displays the love of my creator even more so. And on the, in this case, giving side of my parents, I can't speak for them, um, but I know their lives have been blessed by it. Mm. And I know that no matter what um, happens, that there is coming a day where they will stand before their creator and their creator will say, good job, my good and faithful servant. They will say, he will say, you cared for me um, when no one else would. Right? He'll say, you were my hands and feet. And, and he'll bring them in and they will have a reward like, no other with their creator because of the love that they've shown to us and as followers of christ if we're willing to step out in faith if we're willing to do what the lord has called us to do um it it is an amazing journey that you um are going to be glad you went on it, it's going to be something that will change your life and will change the life of others for the glory of god and at the end of the day what more can we ask for right praise god i want to be like josiah yeah. <laughs> I want to be like my parents. Yes, yeah. man. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Josiah, for coming on. We really appreciate your insight, uh, your vulnerability. Praise um, God for you. Yeah. Thanks and the for way, what you're doing. And the way the gospel shines through your story and what you're doing. So, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
The abortion crisis is real, and the solutions to that crisis are far-reaching and will require more than a rewriting of our laws. It will require a reorientation of our lives to love our neighbors as ourselves, to turn our attention to the plight of orphans and mothers with a selfless determination to take their burdens on as our own, and to love them with the love of Christ, doing what's necessary on their behalf. What is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to love? This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can engage in the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture@lakeridge.org. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.